I want to invite Holly Thompson to come up and read uh, our scripture passage for today. Okay. All right. Brothers and sisters, we ask you to respect those who are working with you, leading you, and instructing you. Think of them highly with love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are disorderly. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure no one repays a wrong with a wrong, but always pursue the good for each other and everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in every situation, because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't suppress the spirit. Don't brush off spirit-inspired messages, but examine everything carefully and hang on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself cause you to be completely dedicated to him, and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept intact and blameless at our Lord Jesus Christ's coming. The one who is calling you is faithful and will do this. Thank you, Holly. So one of the things I like to remember about Paul's letters is that they're written to real churches, real people. I think I get confused when these inspired words seem like some sort of code that's been passed down or or some sort of message that's been piped over the loudspeaker. Rather, what we get are epistles. They're, they're in letter form. We kind of find one half of the conversation, maybe hopefully the important half, right? We're like eavesdroppers. We're like someone listening on the bus to one half of a conversation. This can be frustrating at times when the half we hear sounds strange to our ears or the things that are being said seem like they come out of nowhere. But it can be really enriching to realize that Paul is in fact an apostle. He's a, he's a sent one with a vested interest, with a, a mission to create healthy little embodiments of Jesus in specific places church plants and neighborhoods. That's who Paul's talking to. His theology always has an audience in mind. It always has a view of the world underneath it. It always has worship and a discipleship lifestyle as its goal. It's not just for him to boss people around. Our passage today is no different. To uh, brush you up a little on your geography of antiquity, This first letter was written and sent and received in a place called Thessaloniki. It's a Greek cosmopolitan trade city. It it was like a co-capital of uh, Byzantium. It later became, uh, Byzantium later was Constantinople. Things were happening in Thessaloniki. They probably had like major events like Moogfest or Art of Cool in Thessaloniki. They took pride in their town. Heck, part of their name was about victory. Like they had the Nike that we get our Nike from. It was in their name, the Greek god of victory. To this church plant, Paul writes 
what the general consensus of scholarship says is the first letter of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians. In today's passage on Trinity Sunday, I want us to consider something really simple. But I think it's, it's one of those, it's maybe all the more powerful because it's so simple. It's earth-shatteringly significant for the way we understand uh, God and the way we worship God, the way we live in this world. Namely, that the God we worship is the God of peace. The God we worship is the God of peace. Now may the God of peace himself cause you to be completely dedicated to him. This is the tagline in our passage, which comes almost at the very end of the letter. It might slip our understanding of how central that is until we read on and on, and until we read before, and we realize that knowing God as the God of peace is one of Paul's fundamental assumptions. <laughs> he starts every letter with, Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace is the start of the conversation. Because it's with grace and with peace that God has started the conversation with us, with the world. And it's through grace and peace that Paul, remember Paul? Paul the violent terrorist against Christ's people? Now he participates in Christ's mission in the church. Consider this, that God might be a God of peace automatically assumes quite a bit. It assumes, for one, that, that God is not the sort of God that goes around looking to pick a fight. But rather, God seeks healing. God seeks truth. It also assumes a certain type of peace considering the quote-unquote peace that was in circulation in the middle of the first century in the Mediterranean, that peace was, was a Pax Romana, what the prophet Jeremiah might call peace, peace, where there is no peace. This peace was really a brutally violent state-enforced coexistence, right? It was a painstakingly maintained status quo that allows for a little non-threatening wiggle room, but snuffs out insurrection early and often with tools like, I don't know, public executions, beatings, and crucifixions. Those, that was the consequence of messing with the peace, of disturbing the peace. Of, that, that was actually what it takes for, for the empire to keep the peace. But God... But God, being the God of peace, assumes something fundamental about who God is and what God the divine in, in his divine life is like. For peace to be the lifestyle, the goal for God, there has to be something fundamentally relational about God. A divine tyrant doesn't seek peace but power, right? Control. But peace comes from someone who experiences their own peace in and of, we might say, themselves. Peace is all the more significant because it describes 
relationships being whole. If your marriage has peace, there's a wholeness to it. If your friendships have peace, there's a wholeness and a oneness and a unity. If your neighborhood has peace, there's not division. Peace is about life that's unbroken, unmarred, unthreatened by sin or fear or lack. So even in this early letter from Paul, long before he, he got more and more sophisticated in his writing, like the, the, like the epistle he wrote to the Roman Christians, we get this, it's almost like a, a developing Polaroid picture like it's a little blurry, but it's, it's all there, of the triune God of peace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in peace, spreading that shalom, that wholeness to and through the church. So another way to think about this, maybe in, in Forrest Gump terms, that helps me sometimes, it's a good filter, is that the God of peace is what the God of peace does. Make peace, right? How transformative could this last week's, and some of you might, might have a lot of friends that are, are really invested in this, how transformative might this past week's general conference of the UMC in Portland have been? It was discussing really contentious in issues around homosexuality. How 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 transformative might it be to, for both sides, for anyone involved, to, to remember that God is a God of peace, that, that the rainbow makes its biblical debut when God calls a truce with humanity. Genesis 9 says, This is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be a symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. The great warrior, God, fresh off the creative destruction of the cosmos, lays down his arms by hanging his bow in the clouds. We see this picture continue to develop in scripture. The writings of the prophets are replete with this vision of God's active and coming relationship repairing, shalom making rain. God will spread this like a disease, this peace. It's an infectious peace. It'll be good news, not just for God's people, but also for the nations, also for all creation. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And Matt prayed this for the lockers. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And it's this peacemaking God that we encounter in the face of Jesus. A man born in Nazareth, but more than a man, our Lord and our Savior, the coming Messiah. Ephesians 2 writes about this peace. I think Jay's got that slide. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person 
out of the two groups making peace. He reconciled them as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. When he came, he announced the good news of peace to you who were far off from God and those who were near. We both have access to the Father through Christ by one spirit. So now you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. As God's household, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. The whole building that's joined together in him and grows up into a temple dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives by his spirit. Do you see how Trinitarian this vision of peace is? This is the good news. This is the gospel. Sometimes I, I, I hate that I am like physically not able to be as excited as this deserves of me. Like, gosh, I'm, I'm just not that kind of preacher I should be. Uh, <laughs> y'all can yell back at me. That would help. <laughs> so the church is given some pretty practical means to becoming a living, breathing icon of this image of the invisible God. We're an image of the image of God. And, and I don't think there's any, any resolution loss when we're imaging Christ and Christ is imaging the invisible God. The very, we're the very body of Christ. Paul instructs us to live in peace with one another, to tap into this massive undercurrent of peace. And make no mistake, this instruction comes for no other reason than the fact that God is peace and has made peace with us. Therefore, peace is our identity. So there's this centripetal element to us. All the scientists in the room, clap your hands. There's this centripetal, this inward uh, environment that's created, an ecosystem of peace. Everyday things, like respecting and thinking highly of those who are working with you, leading you, instructing you. Built into this admonition is an awareness that there's going to be great potential for conflict and unpeace for those around you. Like the only way to completely safeguard around there not being unpeace or conflict is just by not being around people or not being with people. There's going to be great potential for, for conflict, especially maybe with the, those who are over you or ahead of you, uh, but also those who are with you. His, his instructions go on to tell us that we're to take retaliation out of circulation that we don't repay one wrong for another. Not just because two wrongs don't make a right, but because doing wrong disrupts the divine dance. The church fathers talk a lot about God's being as a dance, and I, I think that, that reflects the joy, but it also reflects the, the movement and, and the, the, their ability to, to stay on beat with one another. The giving and receiving of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They don't they don't do that, so we don't do that. 
his instructions continue, warn those who disturb the order, um, and again, to further the dance analogy, warn those who are stepping on toes, but also account for it, because being a good dance partner doesn't just stop the dance, but accounts for it and gracefully makes up for those mistakes. The dance mustn't stop. We're to slip into the stream then of rejoicing. It says rejoice always, pray continually. Slip into the stream of prayer and thanksgiving in every situation. Every situation. Like, I think when I read that, I, I normally think that it's, it's trying to tell me also rejoice when things are bad, which I think it's, it's doing. But what if it's also saying rejoice in every situation, meaning this blanket, every situation. That that is where the Spirit lives in every situation. Why would we want to quench the spirit of the living God who calls us to life? Hang on to what is good and avoid evil like the plague. It's here in the everyday stuff. Not just the Sundays when we're like in our best dress and, and uh, you know, on our best behavior that we, it's everywhere, it's always that we can tap into this eternal life of God. C.S. Lewis um, talks about this, and he frames something as ordinary as, as prayer, as ordinary and routine as, as just a guy beside his bed praying at night. He talks about it this way. He says, An ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He is trying to get into touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he's praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him that's pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he's being pushed to that goal. So that whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in the ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The whole man or woman, is being caught up into the higher kind of life, this zoe, this spiritual life. He or she is being pulled into God, by God, while still remaining him or herself. If we can start to see prayer in these terms, how might we start to see some of the other ordinary parts of our life as being participation in the life of a triune God of peace? This week, I, I had lunch with someone who started a business, and he, he manages uh, a lot of employees. He's done all the tasks <coughs> that any of his employees do, so I asked him, like, what do you really like to do? Because it's not, it's not necessary that someone who starts a business loves to just be a manager. So I, I was like, no, do you really want to do this, but you find yourself just managing people? And he gave me the most interesting answer of this. He said, 
I see my main role and my main gifting, and I think it's important that he, he paired the two, as trying to see and trying to help my team see where God is breaking in and doing something. And usually that happens when there's conflict, like even minor creative, constructive conflict. You see, my friend has this awareness and this pastoral gifting that unpeace is constantly possible. And his job as a good boss is not only avoiding hurtful conflicts, but, but seizing opportunities in those conflicts to experience the good news of God in Christ, the good news of the God of peace by cultivating peace. What if we did that <laughs> with our colleagues, with our family, with our friends? What if we're leaning towards the shalom of God by comforting the discouraged, helping the weak, cultivating lives of patience and faithfulness and long-suffering because God is patient and faithful and long-suffering to the core. We develop churches and, and communities of peace as expressions of the peace that God has made with each and every one of us as individuals and as a reflection of the community of peace who is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So every time there's even a hint of a little bit of conflict, even a little bit of friction or rubbing the wrong way in our marriages and our friendships and in our, in our, with our kids or with our neighbors, instead of shrinking back in fear that it's all just going to fall apart, I think we do that a lot, right? Um, if, if I approach that neighbor, it's all going to fall apart. Or instead of running in shame because you think your part of it is unforgivable or irreconcilable. Or instead of acting in anger or impatience that's normally way out of proportion with what the situation really um, calls for. What if in these moments, these situations are just ripe opportunities for peacemaking? What if there are actually moments of grace in disguise as conflict? What if there are chances to draw closer to the heart of the God of peace? Another thing that I've, I've been learning about peace, uh, last month, uh, I've mentioned this a couple times, and, and this, this will be the last time, I promise. Last month, I took this awesome trip, this man's weekend that I get together with my college buddies, and um, you get to see uh, a little bit of the picture of this 20-acre permaculture farm in southern Indiana, and there's a string of emails ahead of time, which is, they're ridiculous, but there are a lot of, of innuendos about, about the Amish, and I just figured that was because my friend looks like that, um, if you can see that. Um, He's got a very strong beard. But, uh, but then when we get out there, we, we realize that we were actually in Amish country, and he bought this farm from an Amish family, and all of his neighbors are Amish. So it wasn't that much of a joke. You see, growing up in Florida, you don't really know a whole lot about the Amish, like really at all, you know? Um, but I kind of got this like weekend immersive understanding of the Amish who are, who are um, even from my caricature, I, I know that the Amish are a peaceful people, right? 
Um, but it can be it can be kind of romantic. It can be kind of like off the wall to 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 consider um, living in that sort of way. But as as we were around them and as we were near to them, as as we made contact with them and heard about my friend's contact with them. We, we realized, or I, I began to realize and, and really respect some of the, the like core convictions, the obsessions of this community um, to be a community of peace, to live peaceably in their community and with their neighbors. They're obsessed. Like literally every decision they make is about how they are going to live together in peace how they're going to live on the land in peace, how they're going to live with their neighbors. And it's all based around their conviction that God is fundamentally peaceful and a peacemaker. And that his kingdom blesses the peacemakers as as his children, as the ones with a family resemblance. They have their father's nose, the son's eyes, the spirit's smile. You see, the Amish um, that, that we met and that we heard about, they, they, they choose to abstain from even technologies, and I mean technologies very, very broadly, from everything from cars and telephones to like covers on wagons and, and pedals on bikes, based simply on the fact that these things might, that we might take for granted, they might put tears in their community. They might create unpeace and, and distance for their community. It was interesting to see uh, the, the mutual respect and the friendship forming between my non-Amish friend um, and them centered on the way each of them let their Christian convictions guide them and the way they, they cultivate and care for the land and the animals under their care. How, how they, they they come pretty quickly to realize that each of them is is trying to is is and is trying to become more and more attentive, more and more intentional, more and more disciplined in their approach to life and work. It was really awesome, kind of the equivalency of the life that I experienced there, between their view of a God who creates and calls and redeems and is peace and makes peace in the life of simplicity and care and attention and selflessness towards others in their community and in those outside of their community. Uh, I, was, I was a witness to that, and it was really inspiring. Don't worry, I, I, I'm not moving out there. I, I might grow my beard, but I will not move out there. Which leads to the fact that this godly peace from the God of peace, while being inwardly evident, while it's kind of preemptive, you do this housekeeping to keep peace, but it's also active, you make peace. While, it's, while it might be uh, centripetal, it might be inwardly uh, conceived, it's also centrifugal, like outward It's spun out towards the world. This is the very makeup also of who God is and how God is. That God is a a sending, going God 
who gains ground by forgiving and fostering forgiveness. This is also built into why we do things, like why we, we send people from our community, because God is a sending God. Paul, in, in our passage from Thessalonians, says, Make sure no one repays a wrong for a wrong, but always pursue the good for each other and everyone else. For each other and everyone else. This is what Paul would later call our ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians, 2, or 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, there, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The other day, while driving uh, here uh, into the office for me, it's a typical... Uh, work, work day, uh, weekday morning, I felt the Spirit asking me to try to imagine. It was like a, a spiritual thought experiment. The Spirit said to me, what does my peace look like in this neighborhood? Like beyond clear-cut things, like we don't want to have any more vigils in this neighborhood. Like that would be a very good first step. But this was a call to imagine, to try to, it was a call to, to have my vision renewed, to try to see all the people and the places that I'm, that I'm used to seeing. Kids getting on school buses, homeless folks walking on the side of the road, morning dog walkers and joggers, to see as I'm driving in uh, the residents of apartments or to try to even see people that you, that you know, don't normally see, like our longtime neighbors who are now shut-ins and don't see many people at all, to try to see our new neighbors who can now afford new old homes, to try to, to hear, to try to hear our friends who speak Spanish or Burmese or things like Python, Ruby, and Java. We have some of those neighbors that speak those languages. What would it look like? What would it sound like, even and especially for those who don't know that God is the God of peace, who has definitively made peace with people through Jesus? What would it look like for them to be called into our doors as they learn and become and contribute to a more full embodiment of this sort of cosmic reordering shalom that has begun in Christ's death and resurrection and continues by his spirit and will be wrapped up in his return. I don't think it means that all those people will necessarily even look all that different, but everything will be different. What does that look like on our block? What, what might we imagine? What might we also image like bear witness to our neighbors about that. I recently 
saw the movie The Revenant and read an interview with that director. If you haven't seen it, it's it's brutal, but it is so beautiful. This is one of the scenes. I don't think you'll be able to see it that well, but go go look up some of the stills. And there was an interview with the director, um, Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu, um, about what he was trying to do visually in that movie. And it, it for me, it kind of rung true to the, our task as peacemakers in this neighborhood. He said, I want to submerge the audience in a natural world that doesn't exist anymore. I want to submerge the audience in a natural world that doesn't exist anymore. I think he was successful at that. And I think we're, too, with our, with our lives with God and our life with others, be submerged and submerge others into this God reality of peace that doesn't exist for most of us, that doesn't exist for many of our neighbors, but through Jesus' death for our sake, exists, and we have access to it. It exists even and especially in those mundane people and places and times and parts of our lives, that we might be submerged and bear witness to this world that we don't realize exists right under our noses. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we primarily know you because you've chosen to make peace with us. That even as we, we look around and, and see hints of you in this world, we know that you're, you're mending your creation. You're mending us. Lord, let us not resist that mending in our lives and in our hearts. Let us participate in that mending in this neighborhood with our friends, with our enemies, um, with those whom we've yet to, to meet. Father, we, we thank you that you, the God of peace, yourself might cause us to be completely dedicated to you in our spirits, in our souls, in our bodies. Keep us intact. Keep us blameless for Jesus, our Lord's return. We know that you're faithful. We know that you'll do this. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Spirit, in the name of the Father. Amen.